0: I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Motherkind podcast. I hope you are all really well. This week is with the rather lovely Joanna Fortune. She is a clinical psychotherapist and an attachment specialist and she's been working with children and families for over 20 years and she has come up with this brilliant concept called 15-minute parenting because what she kept hearing time and time again was that often we only have 15 minutes quality time a day with our children so she's got these series of books all centered around how to connect with our children underpinned with all of her psychotherapy and attachment specialism how to use play to connect with them so the books are fantastic there's one zero to seven which is what we focused on really because that's the one that i read and there's another one which focused on the years eight to twelve so i loved this conversation we started off as we often do with the podcast talking about the importance of how we are as the mother and as the parent or the caregiver and how important it is. You know, if there's one thing that is the red thread through all these conversations that we have, it's that we have to look at our own stuff, really. You know, and Joanna says parenting starts with introspection. It's like Gabor Marte, who is still our most popular episode on the podcast, says that the real task of parenting is self-parenting. So we start off talking about that and intergenerational parenting and how actually we think that we are just showing up as a parent in the moment but we are so affected by the three generations before us what happened to them and their reactions so we unpack some of that which as you know is my jam I just absolutely loved thinking about that and talking about it so I loved getting into that with Joanna we also talk about in a critic and shame and how that is a product of how we were parented and how we can start to be aware of when we might be passing that on to our children and what to do instead so that is absolutely brilliant that's around the middle of the conversation and at the end we talk about play and how to use play in just 15 minutes to connect with our children you know which is what we all want which is what attachment theory is about you know the strength of that connection we have with our children is their template is their blueprint going forward into their lives so how we can do that in just 15 minutes a day it was kind of music to my very busy ears so i hope that you're really going to love the conversation as always please do share rate and review and if you haven't also check out the family reset plan www.familyresetplan.co.uk which is my current offering it's a two and a half hour online workshop to help you take stock of everything that's happened in our world and reset So I hope you can have a look at that if you haven't already. Here is the episode. Joanna, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to chat this morning.
1: Oh, I'm delighted to be here. I've been looking forward to
0: talking with you. Well, I read the book, which is 15, remind me of the title, it's totally escaped me, sorry I haven't got it in front of me.
1: No, it's 15 Minute Parenting and I think the one you read was the zero to seven years, the first book in the series. So there are three books, so 15 Minute Parenting, zero to seven years and that's looking at those all important early childhood years. Then the green cover is the eight to 12 years, middle childhood. I felt really strongly about having a book dedicated to middle childhood because, you know. Psychological and parenting fields, it's often the age group that is most under discussed. You know, we talk about the early years, then the teenage years, and we tend to catapult forward and short circuit that journey. And I think the middle childhood years are really important. So I was delighted to spotlight that. And coming actually on October 23rd is the teenage years book that will have a red cover. So the three books will be fully out there by October 23rd. But at the moment, zero to seven and eight to 12 are.
0: Brilliant. Well, we're going to get into this 15-minute concept. I love it. You know, as a kind of busy working mum, I love it. But yeah. I wanted to start off, you know, so much of what we discuss on this podcast. In fact, if one thing aligns all our conversations, it's that we can only give what we've got, you know, as parents and mothers. Absolutely. We can only be as good a parent as we are parenting ourselves is something that we talk about a lot so I thought it might be really interesting to start there and you say in the first kind of couple of chapters of the book that parenting starts with introspection and there is yeah. no better way than realizing <laughs> you have unresolved issues from your own childhood than to become a parent and this was <laughs> so true for me because when I became a parent I had been in recovery from loads of dysfunctional behaviours for 10 years when I became a parent and it still absolutely flawed me and so much old trauma and memories and pain came up. It always gives me so much comfort. I mean, I think that's honestly why I started the podcast because I felt like no one was really talking about that. So why did you put that right at the start of the book?
1: Really, for all of the reasons you've just articulated perfectly there that, you know, I do firmly believe that there is no better way to discover your own unresolved stuff than to become a parent. Because that transition from being the child of a parent to being the parent of a child is psychologically huge. Like it is huge transition and I think so many of us get used to in terms of you know functioning in everyday life that there are some of the big stuff we might go yeah I'm aware this happened and that happened and I've had those experiences and I've looked at those but beneath those there could be a whole layer of other stuff like a breadcrumb trail is how I'd look at it and we're great as human beings at putting all those things into boxes and just hammering shut the lids pushing them down and go, do you know what? Not right now. I'll deal with that another day. And then all of a sudden you have this Life changing event, you become a parent and making a baby, that baby also makes you a parent. So there's a transaction there. It brings up all of that stuff. And you know what happens is all those lids of those boxes fly open, usually at the most inopportune moment. You know, you've got a newborn, you don't have the time or resources to be dealing with your own emotional stuff. And it can leave you feeling quite flooded and overwhelmed. So for me, I actually always come back to I think children are very important. I think they should always be really important in our families if we choose to have them. But I do not advocate that children should be the most important thing in a home or relationship because I actually think that your own well-being, taking care of yourself, nurturing and investing your intimate partner relationship, sustaining those are a gift to your children as best we can do that. So investing in yourself and saying, look, I need to mind myself is a great way of modeling self-care for our children as well. But it's also saying, I can only be what you need me to be if I take care of myself too. So it is a balancing act. You know, it really is because you started by saying, you know, we're all so busy and that's so true. You know, we're running on empty, especially at the times we're living in. And it can be really difficult to say, you know, when's the last time I just sat and had a hot cup of tea or coffee? Or when's the last time I did that class that I used to love going to? Or I met up with my friends just for a a night out or an afternoon out, whatever it might be, a brunch. When is the last time I did something that was truly authentically for me and my desire and my passion? And frequently in my work, when I ask that question, there's this dramatic pause as people go, gosh, you know, when was the last time I really did something that was just for me? And that's something I feel really strongly about. I think we do need to take care of ourselves, our non-parent selves, so that we can be our best parent selves.
0: What's so interesting, though, is I think they're two quite separate things as I see it. It'd be good to unpack this with you. Yeah, Introspection, and really having the courage to unpack some yeah. of our own childhood stuff is really different in my experience than the self-care things you were just talking about. Because the self-care things, they feel nice, right? Like when I say, actually, I'm going to go to that yoga class or I'm going to, you know, that's nurturing myself, but unpacking, and I would love you to talk through the parental self-audit, you know, asking ourselves those really hard questions like actually was I seen and heard as a child yeah and am Mm -hmm. I able to see and hear my child I don't think that's fun personally No, (laughs) I think it's important to pull this out because I get really passionate and frustrated actually that the two often get confused out there in the rhetoric and I think your book brilliantly kind of separates
1: absolutely you're so right It's a little bit like how we talk about, you know, mental health and mental well-being as well. All of those self-care things are so important to put yourself front and centre at least once in a while. But... In order to draw benefit from those, you have to be in a place where you can say, actually, I do feel the benefit. I do feel better having done that. And that's why the parental self-audit is a separate part in this book because that is the introspection piece. To parent outwards, you have to go inwards first. And I have included in here some, as you've just said, you know, some really hard questions and you may not have the answers to all of them. And sometimes what it brings up for you is, actually, you know, I have to look at that. I have to go somewhere. And look at fixing this stuff. So for me, the parental self-audit isn't a one-off thing. It's something that you can revisit and should revisit and return to. But you basically start by asking yourself some questions. But what's really important, you know, Zoe, as you were saying, is it's not just about asking yourself questions. It's answering those questions, you know, because you have to answer them as fully and as honestly as you can. And then you just note, even to yourself, if something that you feel requires further reflection or support comes up within that. But You've named a couple of the questions, but there are things like, you know, what was growing up like for you? In what ways was your relationship with your mother similar to or different from your relationship with your father? How were you disciplined as a child? How did it make you feel at the time? How do you feel about it now? Who played with you as a child? Did you lose someone important? How were successes celebrated? How were disappointments managed? There's questions like that all the way through, and you have to bring up in your mind the answers to those and some of those are going to be really warm and reassuring and remind you gosh yeah, I really liked that I can do that with my child and some of it isn't going to feel like that it's going to be That wasn't easy for me. And even recalling it, I'm reminded it's not easy. What we're looking for, though, when we do this is a process called reflective functioning, whereby I can recall things that happened to me in the past or that I experienced in the past, but I'm recalling them from a position now of fresh thinking and new perspective that I can say, yeah, you know, this was really bad. I really struggled with it. I felt really upset. And I remember this is what I did to try and fix it or make it better or this is how it worked out but in recalling it, I don't re-experience it in the now. If when we recall something from the past and it brings up really strong emotions, it's like, oh my goodness, it just happened. It feels very raw, very active and very current. Then that's something that is as yet unprocessed for you. And you owe it to yourself to give yourself attention and time to look at that with a suitably qualified professional. It would be my recommendation that you can say, look, this has come up for me, I realise it's very active, it hasn't resolved and it's something that I want to look at now because it's those echoes from our past that will play out now with our children. That is so important
0: and I think just in the narrative around parenting, I don't know if you you must feel this way, which is why you've done the books, you know, it's just so often not talked
1: about. Not at all.
0: I feel like actually... This is why Gabor Marte, who I just adore his work, and I know you do too, you know, yeah. says the primary act of parenting is self-parenting. Because actually, as you say, until I become conscious and aware of some of the things that happened to me and how that's mm-hmm. impacted, how I'm likely to parent, it would be good to get your view. You know, what I see is either a direct repetition of that
1: yeah.
0: or a penduluming into the total opposite which is still a reaction against so how do we get to you know once we've become aware perhaps it's like an experience from my own childhood was actually I felt like there wasn't any space for my feelings Mm -hmm. I notice I think I probably go too far sure (laughs) on validating Jessie's feelings and I don't do well enough
1: on the boundaries helping her That's so interesting. And I totally get that, that, you know, one way or another, aren't we guided by our past? Because even when you say, look, this didn't happen for me, so I'm going to make sure it happens for my child. The fact that it didn't happen for you is still what's guiding and influencing your actions.
0: Exactly. How do we get to the, is it only once we've really healed, I use healed, I think you use the word processed, that we then are able to kind of clean slate parent.
1: Yeah. And I don't even know if we can ever clean slate parent. I'm one of five siblings. Okay. So if you were to take me and all of my siblings and line us up and ask us the same set of questions about our parents and growing up, we would give you five different sets of answers because even though we have the same parents who objectively speaking parented in the same way with the same thought process or parenting philosophy for all of us, how we each experienced that is different because we're all different. So for me, the word process comes up because it's actually through processing, there's healing. But I think it's about looking at, yes, all of these things happened and some of it was good and some of it was really not. But I have learned from all of that and I'm moving forward in an informed way. So it's like we take those breadcrumb trail, that memory that's buried deep down and it's only by interweaving it with narrative that it enters our conscious awareness. So it's learning to speak those experiences. And sometimes we can do that through reflective exercises, such as a parental self-audit. And sometimes we need somebody neutral in our lives who can bear witness to that and reflect our own words back to us, such as a psychotherapist, a psychologist, or somebody in that field. And I think there's strength to be gleaned from saying, yeah, you know, this is bigger than me. I need some help with that. In the same way, if you had a recurring injury in your physical body, you would go to somebody about that. You wouldn't say, I'm just going to shake that off. You'd go to a physiotherapist or somebody who could help you with that recurring injury. It's the same kind of thing. And I think for me, it comes up clinically speaking, when a child is presented to me as my child is having struggles, my child needs some help. Often, you know, and you quoted, you know, Gabor Mayday there, but also Carl Jung said something that came to my mind when you were talking there. He said, you know, if there's anything that we wish to change in the child, we should first examine it and see whether it is not something that we could better be changed in ourselves. And it's not always, I do want to put that out there, every struggle our children have isn't always something that's within us. But there's something very empowering rather than guilty. We shouldn't feel badly about this because if it's something that's an echo of us, look at the amazing opportunity we have to change that, to look at actually, you know, yes, this makes sense to me. And by it making sense to me now, I can make sense of it with and for you, my child. And your child grows up without that staying with them. I often think it comes up around conflict and discipline issues. You mentioned boundaries. So that's really interesting to me because boundaries and limit setting are the route to safety for children and secure attachment. They're never going to thank you for it, by the way. Thank you for those boundaries and limits, you know, said no child ever. But they do thank you in how they live safely and securely within those boundaries. So I think by the time we snap or lose it, or get irritated, or maybe more than irritated, get enraged or angry with our children. By the time that happens, it's not because of what our child did or said. It is because of what got activated in us when they did or said it. And that goes back to us. So you have to start with yourself and really looking at, how did I experience being the child of my parents? What did that mean to me at the time? And now with my adult retrospection, how can I better make sense of that now? Or maybe there's parts of it that still don't make sense, but I'm aware that it's playing out like an internal soundtrack in my life. You know, it's a bit like having a bruise and you know it hurts, but you keep touching it to make sure it still hurts. Yeah. I'm sure I'm not the only one who does that. Ouch, yeah, still sore, still sore. And I think it's that compulsion to repeat, you know, in psychoanalytic literature that it's talked about, you know, when there's something there and it's still there, we have a compulsion to repeat it in a bid to make sense of it. So the parental self-audit is there to really say, look, we matter, we're important and we're extremely important. We're the most important people in our children's lives. We owe it to ourselves and our children to do right by ourselves and to give ourselves this time to really look at who am I as a parent? And no matter how many books you read and say, okay, that's the kind of parent I choose to be, when your own attachment system is activated, when you're in an emotional interaction with your child, which let's face it is multiple times a day, every day, it's not what you read in a book that you default to, it's what you lived. And so we have to shine a light on what we lived.
0: Yeah, you're so right. And, you know, I often reflect on this because I've done, you know, a fair amount of work. Like, you know, I've been in (laughs) psychotherapy 10 years now. You know, I've done 12 steps, multiple times. You know, I've done all the retreats. I've done all the healings. And what I notice is that when I'm not activated. I'm pretty good at this stuff. I can contain myself. But the moment I go into stress, you know, and that cortisol gets triggered in me, I go right back to my programming, which is putting a need to be loved above
1: all else. You know, I'm sure your attachment theory is pretty Absolutely. And that makes such sense, doesn't it? We often hear when somebody meets somebody new and they're excited about the relationship and they say, you know, I I really love this person. They get me. They really get me. And I think that's what we all want is to get gotten, for somebody to understand us and not just understand us you know on a oh yes I understand what you're saying right now but to understand us from the inside out to know how we tick how we work how our rhythms move and what affects us and doesn't and when you're with somebody who truly gets you and you get that feeling that's something really powerful and in attachment work for me that goes back to those early couple of months when a baby it's often called the fourth trimester also the codependent stage of development but in those first three four months a baby doesn't yet know that they're a separate being to their mother okay you know that nook of the arm time when you're holding your baby and for the purpose of what I'm saying now you're looking at your baby with love okay your baby doesn't see you but they see themselves reflected through you so from the baby's point of view it's not I love you it's I'm lovable. I'm deserving of love. And they see themselves reflected through you. So after they begin to go, would you look at that? You know, the world is bigger than you and I. In fact, there is a you and I, and now there are others. This is crazy. I have to get my head around that. And they're looking for people that make them feel the way that felt. So they are more responsive to others in their attachment network who love them, truly love them, because it reinforces that sense that I'm lovable. It's why, you know, if you take your buggy out and a stranger or a neighbor looks in and, you know, oh, cute baby, your baby doesn't light up for them the way they do for a grandparent or another parent who truly loves them. So it is that sense of, I am making sense of my sense of self, the scaffolding for that is already laid down in those first few months of life. It's so fascinating, isn't it? So
0: the good thing I think about attachment, you know, having looked a lot at my own attachment, is that it can be healed, can't
1: it? Absolutely, it can repair, yeah, the repair of ruptured attachment.
0: I know with my first, you know, it's so fascinating, you know, I felt so strongly about wanting to, her you know, sleeping on me and co sleep. Mm-hmm. And actually, it didn't quite go. It did with my second, interestingly. With Jessie, you know, I definitely let her cry in her cot on her own more than I should have. You know, it's really interesting to me how I had the knowledge, as you say, but I think there was still parts of me that couldn't quite handle that intimacy and that
1: dependency. Oh, and the constancy of demand. And yeah. don't forget that Jessie made you a parent. Yeah. Jessie made you a mum, not yeah. your second child. You were already a mum then. So that's a very different transaction as well. It's really powerful between your first child for that reason.
0: So I'm wondering, you know, if if people are listening, perhaps like I would be, you know, if I was listening to this conversation and, you know, I heard you say those first two months, you know, really do create the foundation of worth and how someone sees themselves. Can you talk to the repair
1: Absolutely. And look, I don't know, am I an eternal optimist? And if I am, so be it. But I genuinely, and I've done attachment specialized work. You know, my clinical work with psychotherapy is attachment repair, trauma recovery work, and working with the parent child relationship or the caregiver child relationship. So I have seen people come in the heights of rupture and over, you know, I'm not going to say it's a quick fix. It's a journey. It's work, Like you've said, you've done 10 years yourself working on all of this is that recovery and repair is always possible. It's not easy because you have to look at things that are really difficult to look at. Mm -hmm. You have to go to places that You know, really, you've maybe spent a lot of your life actively avoiding those dark corners of yourself, but be aware that somebody who is skilled in attachment repair work and trauma recovery work isn't going to go, well, there it is right there. I found it for you. Now deal with it. It's very slow, steady, respectful work because emotional flooding should always be considered. So it's going to be somebody who minds you as you mind yourself through that journey. And that's really important, but it is always possible. And there are some wonderful play-based and I really, as you know from reading the book, I see play and playfulness as more than a box of toys in the corner of a room. Play is a state of mind. It's a way of being. And playful connection is very healing. So I'm really interested in the kinds of attachment-focused therapies that use playfulness as a language. And that could be theraplay is one very good example of dyadic, that is, you know, parent and child or caregiver-child Therapy where you are not the client or the child is not the client in focus, but the relationship between you is what is in focus. So it's all done through very selected play it's play with purpose. It's not just blowing bubbles for bubble's sake. It's knowing what you're doing, when and why. And there's another one called dyadic developmental psychotherapy or DDP is its acronym for short. And it's more talk based, but it's very playful as well in that narrative. There's a reason that works because actually it's speaking to a part of our brain that is accessible when we are in a state of rupture. And what I mean by that, if you think of when you lose it, you know, like when you just snap and lose it, and I'm saying when, because we all do this, okay? We have to start from a place of honesty of saying, yes, we all lose it sometimes. But when you do, you often hear people use that phrase, I flipped my lid. And when you flip your lid, what has actually happened is your lid is your neocortex. It's that logical, reasoning, reflective, good choice-making part of your brain. And when you flip your lid, that part of your brain goes offline. You don't have access to it. And when somebody tries to talk to you, I mean, in the history of being stressed, have the words calm down ever actually (laughs) calmed anyone down? I mean, no. Never. In fact, it exacerbates because the part of your brain that could hear, receive and process those words is offline. You're actually down in the limbic amygdala emotional center of your brain and that part of your brain is on fire when you're stressed and activated. It's firing those fight, flight, freeze cues at you. And whatever way you're wired to either fight, you know, get into conflict and get combative and fight your corner, or flight, run away from that, shut down, get quiet, hide, retreat, or freeze. Do nothing, say nothing, get passive, get really quiet. Whatever way you're oriented, that's from your story of growing up. That's your attachment story. There isn't a better or worse one. That's our brain's way of keeping us safe when we're in a state of stress, attack, anxiety, whatever it might be. We're under threat. Keep yourself as safe as possible. I'm cueing you to fight this flee it, or freeze. And then if you're in that part of your brain for a prolonged period of time, the lower realms of your brain are also going to get affected. So you know that area of the brain to do with motor regulation. So am I hungry, full, hot, cold, tired, energetic, not being able to read your physical body cues, coordination, feeling very clumsy, walking into things, dropping things. And you know, those times when you walk into, again, I'm saying when, because I'm assuming we all do this and not just me, you walk into your kitchen and you kind of stand there for a moment and go, what did I come in here for? Yeah. What multiple times. I doing? So that's a sign that, you know, we're a little offline and When we have a good, healthy system of knowing how to self-repair, self-recover and get back online, I might know, I'm tired. I should actually have a cup of tea and a biscuit, or I should get outside and get some fresh air for a couple of minutes. When I get into, I should... I know that I have a way of getting myself back online. If I don't have those inner resources, then I'm going to sink even further. And in extreme trauma, extreme stress, I might go the whole way down into my brainstem where you know what, I'm just trying to stay alive. Heart rate, blood pressure, breathing. But if I'm down in those lower areas of my brain, And somebody comes to me and says, let's talk about what just happened there. And think of it as a parent with your child. Your child has lost it. You know, they've had a complete meltdown, which is different to a tantrum, but they've had a complete meltdown. And we come in and go, I'm going to talk at you now about what happened. And I'm going to give you verbal direction as to what you're to do going forward. That is like the radiator on and the window open. That can't possibly land. Not for our children and not for us when we're in that state words alone won't do it and that's why I think attachment focused work is more than words it's doing communication not just speaking it and for me that's the essence of using play as a language
0: yeah so it's so interesting because what I was thinking there you know is it's so easy to become a child again yes with our children you know I know that I can quite clearly see actually I've lost, as you say, my prefrontal cortex, you know, my adult self is no longer functioning here. And I am, you know, because children don't have that till the age of seven, my understanding totally. That's too. right. Yes. So the, the both of us are kind of in our, you know, in our limbic, in our yeah. activity, So when someone finds themselves in that space, we all know it, where we might be shaming our children, you know, you just get it right. What's wrong with you? They're doing it, you know, comparing to other children or screaming at our children or maybe wanting to walk away from them. If you don't come, I'm just going to leave you in the supermarket. How does someone in that moment, you know, you said words aren't going to work. So how does the parent get themselves back into the adult to then help the child?
1: Oh, there's so much there because I think, you know, when we do go to that shaming language where we're seeking to shame somebody else, it's actually a projection of our own shame base because shame is so difficult to contain and hold on to. And one of the most effective ways, damaging, but effective ways to get rid of that icky, uncomfortable feeling within ourselves is to evacuate it and project it onto somebody else. So often when we end up putting somebody else into shame, when we've said something shaming, that's the moment to kind of hit your internal pause button and go, oh oh, what of my own stuff have I just put out there in this moment
0: it's so 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 important because yeah I hang around a lot (laughs) (laughs) you know I have two kids you know I'm in play groups I'm in the supermarkets I'm at school drop-offs and I think this kind of casual shaming is an epidemic I hear it constantly I do it myself you know I'm so far from perfect I hear it all the time what's wrong with you why can't you just so I think this idea that when we hear those shaming words you know may be useful actually for you to give a few more examples of what shaming is so that people could recognize it in how they interact with their children that that is a real sign you know we started this conversation by talking about introspection That is a real sign for introspection.
1: Oh, isn't it just? And you know, actually, Zoe, I did a TEDx talk back in 2017 a few weeks after I'd given birth. (laughs) So that was a story in itself. But I did it on shame, actually. Um, Shame in social media, particularly because I think, you know, social media is a shame playground. You know, as soon as you screen grab a message and send it to someone and say, would you look at this? You know, we're engaged in a shame narrative. So I think when we look at this, you have to, first of all, distinguish in your mind what's guilt and what's shame. Guilt is about behaviour shame is about the person and if what you do or say has made the person feel badly that's about shame if it was focused on what you did and said about your behavior and there's some guilt there is pro-social benefit to some degree of guilt because it enables us to change our behavior it enables us to go gosh that wasn't my finest moment and I'm sorry I regret that and I can make repair with you and you said something so interesting when you said you know you can become a child yourself in relation to your own child in certain Interactions. And when that happens, it's a bit like having a hot potato, and that's what the shame is. And you just toss it back and forth. And then the child does something that triggers in you, oh my goodness, I'm a bad parent. And because now I'm in my shame place of being a bad parent, I'm going to act out of being a bad parent and do all the bad parent things just so I can feel even more shamed. It's that reinforcement without actually being able to say, it's toxic. Shame is toxic. You cannot contain it. It will find its way out. It'll play out. in some way in our lives and when we think about becoming a child in relation to our child it's worth going back into remembering within each of us there is a parent adult and child voice, let's say. And my parent voice can have two tones. It can be that nagging parent voice. I'm going, to you. let me tell you what to do. And here's all the things you're doing wrong. Or it could be a nurturing parent voice. Oh, you poor thing. Sit down there now till I mind you and take care of you. My adult voice is where I'd like to think I spend most of my time being reasonable and rational and reflective. And my child voice or children voices within me is either that whingy, whiny, well, why does it always happen to me? I've got so much work on. I'm doing more than everyone else voice versus the woohoo, every day is a Friday in my world carefree child voice. We all have those. And what they look and sound like within us is a direct result of what was put into us by our own parents. From yes. Their parent, I'm parent, so adult. I'm so
0: fascinated by voice. this. I'm so fascinated because we often talk about inner critic. Oh yeah. It's an inherited critic, right?
1: And it's inherited. I mean, look, at it sounds like, you know, listen, there's always someone else to blame. But what I'm really saying is that by the time you open your mouth, it is the result of three generations that has shaped what you're going to do or say in this moment. That's your parents, what they put into you and what was put into each of them by their respective parents. Yeah. So to think that in those heightened moments that we have control over what's going to come out, we often do not. But by being curious. And I talk in the book about, you know, mentalizing as well. And mentalizing is really about trying to understand misunderstanding, trying to make sense of what doesn't make sense. And when we do that, we are staying out of a place of knowing, and we are assuming a position of seeking to understand. And that's where I talk about wondering and being curious. Because if you come at this from a place of, I have a story I'm telling myself right now, this is how I'm making sense of what's just gone on but I might be wrong. And if I can stay in a place of curiosity and say, I'm not quite sure I get what happened. This is what I'm telling myself. Does that make sense to you? And the other person can then say, yes, you're right. I am blaming you and it was all your fault. Or they can say, no, gosh, it wasn't about you at all. Here's where I was coming from with that. And all of a sudden, You've got something that fills in those dots, those spaces that joins it up. And that's about interweaving with narrative. But when we can't do that, we tend to get into this standoff of it's your fault. It's not mine. Maybe it's mine. I don't want it to be mine. I'm going to make it yours. And we get into that shaming interaction and that shaming narrative. This is so
0: important. And something I kind of liked on the podcast is take your incredible depth and expertise and try and make it really real for people and I think this is how my understanding tell me if I'm wrong oh sure of how this works generationally so if you had a mother who was criticized by her mother and therefore her inner voice might be critical to herself she mm-hmm. is likely not necessarily I guess but likely to criticize her child in moments that she feels activated, so that child then develops a critical inner voice, so when they become a parent, they are likely to criticize and this is why we talk about you know and it's so helpful I think to break it down like that is the parenting and you said it you know you think you're parenting afresh, but really it 's three generations back, Absolutely. and I just it is so profound like I could talk. All day long about this because I think it's absolutely the missing piece of modern parenting. Like we just don't seem to talk about it. And I love how you say in the book, you know, please don't spend a thousand pounds on a bugaboo. (laughs) Go and (laughs) figure, unpack some of this stuff out if you can. And that is my experience. It's like if you want your children, everyone says, don't they? I just want my children to be happy, and yet. The real way I think and my passion and what I'm trying to do with Motherkind is actually say, if you really want that, go and unpack some of your own stuff, because that will become, as you're so helpfully describing for everyone, that will become, to some degree, you say history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, their experience
1: Absolutely and I think as well you know if you are listening and thinking back you know gosh that does describe a very difficult relationship I had with my own parent am I doomed to repeat that you're not because another part of the parental self-audit is to look at did you have important adults in your life outside of your immediate family and who were they and in what ways were they important because actually all it takes is that you come into contact ideally early but you know i'm an optimist as i said it's never too late so i think if you come into contact with a child-minded adult a child-minded caregiver that could be a teacher a neighbor a relative a social worker that could have been anybody in your life that might be enough that might be enough to have put into you there is another way of doing this and i could follow the other way
0: change that inner
1: narrative exactly it can break that cycle and just put you onto a different trajectory and that's what we're really talking about here you also mentioned though, Zoe, something about you know we all make these mistakes and we're not perfect and I think that's great you know I just want to put out there that perfect is not good enough and it's something that the child psychotherapist Donald Winnicott would have written about over the years is that perfection is not good enough good enough is good enough because actually if we strive for perfection we are not giving ourselves permission to make mistakes and if we don't make mistakes we are foreclosing opportunities to learn and if we don't learn then nothing changes actually I think when we do have those less than glorious moments (laughs) with our children and we yell I mean I literally write books on this and do this for a living but I'm not my child's professional I'm my child's parent so when I parent her All of my own experiences and activations, of course, are in play. So what I would be very clear about is that if I get it wrong and when I get it wrong, that I come back and say, I'm sorry, I did that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have yelled. I got angry, but really it was because I was scared that you would run out on the road. So I yelled at you in my very cross voice and you got a fright, but I was scared and I'm sorry I did it like that you can come back and make sense of what didn't make sense. If you think about when your child is struggling to do something, you know, like take the lid off a Lego box, because that's hard. And they try and they try and they fail and they fail. And they get so frustrated that they throw the box across the room in a temper. If we come in and we say, don't throw your toys because you threw your Legos, it's going away now, you've no Legos for the day. They've learned nothing. And now they were already upset and now you've punished the upset. So they're just thinking you're mean. They don't link that to what they did. But if you can come in and say, oh, you tried and tried to get the lid off the box and it wouldn't work, you got so mad that you threw your box across the room, then you retrieve the box and you subtly loosen the lid and say, now let's try it together. One, two, three, the lid comes off. You say, you did it. So you have made sense of what happened. Your overt behavior, throwing of the box, was underpinned by your emotional state of frustration, which was underpinned by the physical state of not being strong enough to get the lid off the box. You are, through repeated experience of that, teaching your child that, I do and say things because of how I think and feel. That can take people their whole lives to work out.
0: Yes, I was just thinking that. I was like, you know, this is what I do with Jesse. And I have to say, I do this. I'm proud of how well I do this, given that I had zero modeling around this stuff. But it's taken me still today, still today, I can grapple with what is my feeling under my behavior because. Yeah. You know, I had amazing parents. They loved us so much, but they just didn't have the gift of, you know, they'd never had therapy. They had their own unresolved traumas. So it was never looked past the behaviour.
1: We have to do that. And especially remember, I know we think that our 18-month-old two-year-olds are evil geniuses and they know exactly what they're doing. But they you know, do the true thing is that they don't have the cognition to do that at that age. So consistently anyway, cause and effect does not develop until four years old. So they throw the box, they feel upset. They're not linking those two. They need us to link that in a kind way. Now, you might be returning the box and say, but remember, we don't throw toys, okay? So you're still going to hold the boundary. I do think we lost the run of ourselves in the world of parenting over the last kind of 20 years or so in saying children must have choices. Of course, they must have choices. Absolutely, they should and must have choices. But those choices should be within parental boundaries. It's not about saying to a child, what do you want to do? It's about saying, do you want to go to the park or to the beach? I'm happy with either of those, but look at you, you get to choose. So if I say, where do you want to go? And they want to go to the zoo and the zoo isn't on the agenda today. Now we're actually fighting. Or if I say, what do you want to drink with your dinner? And they say, cola. And really, I meant milk or water. I should have said milk or water. Do you want milk or water? Oh, you made a choice. Great. But it was within my parental scaffolding. So we have to think of boundaries as a measure that creates safety and reassurance and that creates security and that's about healthy attachment
0: because if a child has too much power quote-unquote that feels really terrifying terrifying because it's like if you're not in charge
1: oh yes it's it's completely completely overwhelming. overwhelming
0: exactly i have been guilty of that not a lot but i've definitely in moments of my four and a half years with Jessie, given her too much
1: power but you know it's about catching yourself Zoe as well and saying silly me I meant to say milk or water I wasn't clear about that what I meant to say was do you want milk or water you can correct that in the moment
0: yeah absolutely and I think you know it's so true what you say about perfectionism because there's this kind of dichotomy isn't there is that this conversation and I think we know so much more than ever before about the profound impact that parenting can have. And yet it's kind of holding the duality of, yes, I know this role is so important and I have to look at my stuff and if I'm shaming or, you know, that could have lasting impact. Yet I also have to know that I'm going to do this really imperfectly. Yeah. To some extent I'm going to mess this up. But it's so fascinating because before we had Jesse, we were in couples therapy because I was petrified of becoming a mum because I kept saying I've got so much unresolved trauma and I can kind of see it on the edges you know I'm not processed I'm not healed in these areas and you know and the therapist was very wise and she said you know if you wait for you to do this perfectly you will wait forever
1: hundred percent
0: and I think perfection is I'm starting to see is another trauma response for me
1: oh it is it's about control yeah I, There's this amazing
0: duality to hold, isn't there? Of knowing the importance of the parental role as we've talked about and the lasting impact and yet knowing that simultaneously I am going to mess it up.
1: But isn't that the essence of knowing you're an adult? You know, I always think that when you can look back on your own parents and how you experience them and you can acknowledge and accept their limitations and love them anyway, congratulations you're an adult
0: yeah exactly and I think that's an ongoing challenge for me you know I have the types of conversations that you and I are having every day basically and it's like wow it's so interesting to me to hold myself in imperfect compassion for this stuff and the other thing I think is so important is an acceptance that yes my girls to some extent are going to grow up with trauma with a lower T you know they're going to grow up with pain they're going to grow up because that is part of life but I think the difference than when I was growing up is my husband and I talk really openly about therapy at dinner
1: absolutely and that's so healthy you know
0: openly about going to recovery meetings I'll talk openly about when things are hard this is what we can do there was none of that conversation so I think that's kind of my philosophy is like actually I'll do my best I'll mess up but they will know where to go and repair some of this stuff outside of our relationship if they need to
1: Absolutely. And I think it's also why, you know, the book is, of course, about play and using play, because in my work with families, one of the f- most common things that I heard over you know my twenty plus years in this work is by the time I've done this and this and this and I'm so busy and I' have so many demands by the time I've done everything, I'm lucky if I have fifteen minutes with my child every day. What can I yeah. do in fifteen minutes yeah. and I started you know a concept called fridge notes with the idea that you'd print things and stick them to your fridge of I'll give you things you can do in fifteen minutes if you've got fifteen minutes, let's make that work for you because actually, I would rather. You do just 15 minutes, but do it every single day, then do an hour and a half on a Monday and then nothing till Friday. Because if you do little, but often you are predictable for your child. And if you are predictable, you are safe. And if you are safe, our connection is secure. And that's about attachment. That's about saying I'm here. But also I've spoken to so many parents who will say, I'm not really good at the play thing. Like I'm just not really good at it. And sometimes that goes back to, and that's part of your audit, parental self audit is, you know, who played with you as a child? And what was that like for you? What was the type of play that brought you joy? Or what kind of play did you find very difficult? Or it's why I go into those stages of play. What did you miss when and why? And also giving you that kind of roadmap of looking at Play isn't my natural inclination, but you know what? I firmly believe I don't care what your background is. We all have a playful capacity. We just have to access it and find a way of doing that. And that's what the types of play, breaking it down, the lists of activities and games to try out what works for you, what brings you alive, what sparks your playfulness.
0: I love that. And I think, you know, you say in the book, children don't tend to say, I'm having a really hard time. I yeah. feel like one said, they say, will you play with me?
1: Exactly. And in the play, it's happening. If you want to know, we're all just going back to school and everything. And we're guilty of, you know, as soon as you get back with your child, what was your day like? What did you do? What did you learn? Where did you go? What happened? Yes, throw
0: questions at them.
1: They don't want to talk to you at all. They're done talking. Their neocortex has been stretched in school all day they're tired, they're down in another part of their brain, the motor arousal, you would be much better off, be you on a bike, walking, or in a car, playing a game like jelly and ice cream which is a co-regulation game, so that you say jelly, they say ice cream back, but they have to say it the same way that you do. So if you yell jelly, they yell ice cream. If you whisper jelly, they whisper ice cream. And you bring your voice up and down and do all kinds of croaks and melodic pieces with that. Then if you do that for five minutes, first of all, it's five minutes of your play done. By the time you get in home, you're both in the same wavelength. You've gotten them co-regulated. If they get into the car and they're hyper, start with your loud jelly. If they come into the car and they're really quiet and low, start with your whisper and bring it up. So think of yourself as the thermostat, not the thermometer. You are setting the temperature. You're not measuring it.
0: That's such a good one. I'm going to do that. That's in the book. You know, what's great about the book is that, you know, you talk about all the stuff that we've just been unpacking, of course, but also how to use play as a way to connect. And I love that. I love that jelly and ice cream one. What other are some of the ones that readers of the book have just said to you they love it there's always a few in books like yours I'm conscious of that just really stand out for people what are those ones and can you share those with the listeners
1: oh yeah I think people have really responded well to the explanation of the three stages of play and breaking down how to do each of those so if you've got stage one sensory messy embodiment play and you're even me saying that is breaking you out in a sweat going oh god the messy play I really don't like that then I've got lots of ways of containing the mess and emphasizing that we have to teach our children that we can contain their outer mess so that their internal mess their chaos their emotional stuff that we can manage that too so I've got lots of ways of people have really responded well to the sensory basins and to the body map of feelings about developing that emotional fluency and parts language teaching children that they are not the angry child in your family they are a child who is feeling angry right now but they're made up of lots of feelings where do their other feelings live in their body what color are their feelings what shape and where do they hold them physically so people have really responded well to that and to the story stemming the narrative piece of stage two play of using small world you know like the little doll's house or the little sylvanian families or the playmobiles whatever it is you use the little people using that as a way of deepening and understanding How does your child experience social situations or things that might be causing them problems? Or what actually happened with the situation that you have your own idea of, but you don't know what happened from your child's point of view? Playing it out at a removed level allows them to depersonalize it and go deeper into it. And I've given a roadmap on how to do that. But I think as well, the standout has been in the book, I talk about doing dance your moodies away. Yeah. Yeah. I actually can remember because people have said it so much, page 188 of the book, Just Dance. It's when everything is just getting to that too much level. You know that witching hour when you've done all the games, you've done the jigsaws, the playing, you've done it all, and still somehow there's 90 minutes left before bedtime. And everything is just getting irritable. What I do is just put on a song, whatever is on your Spotify list or your iPod, whatever it is, it could be Disney, it could be the Rolling Stones, Just play that song and for the duration of that song, nobody does anything but dance. Flail your arms, stamp your legs, move, sway, get silly for that three and a half minutes because rhythm and synchrony trigger the subsystems of the brain associated with emotional regulation. It takes us all out of those verbal fighting parts of our brains into the more movement and coordination part and it helps to bring us back online and it's fun Sometimes you don't need any more science than it's fun. Yeah. So dance the moodies away has been something people have said to me over and over. Oh, we dance the moodies away every day now. So that's been a standout as well. But I think there are loads because other parents would speak to the armchair play. You know, when yeah, your parental stamina that. is through the floor, I'll still get you playing and you don't have to leave your chair. I've had a lot of parents say, thank you for armchair play.
0: <laughs> well, it's such a good resource. Because I think like you say, you know, what's great about it is that you give these really practical ways, but actually because of what you do, you know, your experience in your, all your trainings and qualifications, they are so rooted in a lot of what we were talking about, you know, yeah. really big, big, big parental challenges and topics yet kind of how to chip away at that connection and that repair with 15 minutes of play so I think it's just such a fantastic resource and I loved it and I'm so happy that you created it
1: oh thank you so much oh you're welcome I
0: always ask the same question at the end of every episode which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world what would that one gift be and why
1: that one gift would be you're good enough and I think it's because I think in our social media world the pursuit of perfection is going to cripple all of us and actually if I could just say you're good enough and you're going to get it wrong and you're going to get it mostly right and getting it mostly right most of the time is good enough you're good enough
0: beautiful I'm going to take that into my day thank you
1: oh thank you so much I've enjoyed talking with you
0: So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it.
1: As ever, if you
0: did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom. Of the guests i have on also just a reminder about the family reset plan it's my latest offering to parents i think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes well definitely so far and as parents we not only have to support ourselves we also have to support our children and that is a lot so the family reset plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.